Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The All That and Mo podcast takes actual money to produce. My producer has a family to support, and I have to support him because I'm all about that. And I am so lucky and so fortunate and so excited to thank all of the folks on Patreon who are helping out. And I want to give shouts out to my Patreon peeps. So we're starting with the Add a Positivity Project. I see you out there. Thank you for your donations. Tawny, the Mostly Harmless, rad. Stephanie Chernikoff, awesome. Scott J, dope. Sarah Leslie. No, Sarah Lieste, Lieste, Lieste? Oh my gosh, I suck. Sarah, you're amazing. I apologize for butchering your name if I did. Minnow and Blossom, you're gorgeous. Meg Baca, thank you so much. Marty Wilder, amazing, so dope. Marshall Flax, delicious. Killer B, 1973, thank you so much. J.P. Robichaud, J.P., I know you always got my back, bruh. Joanna Spencer, Jojo to my mojo, who's known me since I'm fucking like five years old. Joe, thank you. I love you. Hadera Copley Woods, thank you so much for your awesomeness, for your donation, for your persistence. Esther, you're amazing. You're beautiful. You're fantastic. DK, shout out to my home bro. Thank you, honey, for supporting me and supporting this podcast. Anna Biddle, you're gorgeous. You're amazing. You're fabulous. Thank you. Andrea, doing it, doing it, doing it well. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Amy Willaert, you are a fucking rock star. Thank you. Eric Meredith Goujon, one of the most brilliant artists that I know. You're the bomb. Love you and so appreciate your support. Now I move to the second tier, Liz Scott, who is a longtime personal friend. I am so very fucking grateful for your support. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Scott. And to my latest and dopest patron, Healthy Life, who is in the champagne room with me. And if you ever choose to join Healthy Life, you will also receive the benefit of all the secret Patreon early releases. And as well, you are entitled to some of my time. So check out patreon.com. All that in Mo uh, or Melina or whatever the fuck it is. I don't know. There'll be a link in the description because my producer's amazing. Thank you. Thank all of you so much because without you, uh, I really wouldn't be able to continue doing this podcast because I can't just keep hemorrhaging money forever. So you are helping me to bring the word to the world. Thank you. I love you. I have questions. Yes. Uh, with me now, because in, in, when I play, a lot of the times I ask for the color. Mm-hmm. So would, would you have been able to either answer with the color or not answer and then... Here's the thing. If, you, if the person does the check-in and you don't check in, you stop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he had said to me, are you okay? What he would have gotten was... <laughs> And that's clear. That's not an affirmation, you know. Um, and those, those measures are important. Um, one of the other tricks that I use is a, uh, a trick that's taken from the 
um, a, a sensory deprivation world where people are given something to hold and they just have to drop it if they lose it. And this is also something that's good for dissociative people because you will often lose control of your hands and feet if you go into a dissociative state, um, which is a good thing. Yeah. If I'd had something to hold, you know, um, and even if you don't drop it, someone can just occasionally pull on it and you know, you have to hold on to it. So if they, if they, if you let them take it, that's also a sign, right? That they're not okay. You know, if at the top of the scene, you say, keep these keys, don't let them go. And then you get them, you know, something's wrong, you know, but I strongly advise people to rely on gut instinct and checking in. And if the person is visually impaired, because um, eye contact is not something you can assume, right? How are you going to deal with a visually impaired person? Speak to them. Are they hearing impaired and visually impaired? Figure it out. Figure it the fuck out. Yes. Great question. Because I have a, uh, I work as a sex worker and mm -hmm. I have a client that uh, can only move her eyes. Mm -hmm. So, no. Yeah. Paralyzed. Yeah. And do you know by any chance any kind of. Uh, Series of blinks? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's obvious, but. Uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. But um, is there the other thing with someone who has that specific a, a, a communication technique, additional check-ins, I think, would be also important. Just check in more more frequently and let them know, you know, it would be super great to be able to fully immerse in this, and perhaps you can. Because here's the thing. If you fully immerse and something goes wrong, that's actually fine. But you need to both know that it's fine, right? Because if I go into a scene and I know things can get real deep and fucked up and someone fucks up, I'm not going to turn to them and say, how dare you? We knew it could get fucked up. If you go down a double black diamond ski course and you break your leg, no one's going to feel, I'm not going to feel bad for you. <laughs> You're a fucking idiot for skiing anyway. Yeah, I said it in Austria. <laughs> I'm crazy motherfuckers. I'm like, stay still. Shit is crazy. <laughs> so, If this person gives you permission to fuck up, if you say, like, let's say they have this fantasy, they really want to do this thing, and you're like, I want to do it, but that's really risky, do you want to roll those dice with me? You know? And sometimes that's really fine. If you're going into it and you're saying, this could get real, real ugly, you, get, you ready for ugly? And the person is truly, honestly ready for ugly? And ready to forgive you in the aftermath if the ugly gets real ugly and you trust that they're ready to forgive you, you know, all those layers, then roll the dice and do it. Everything that we do, like BDSM is an Olympic sport. Of course, you're going to fall down and break stuff. Of course, you're going to have bruises. Of course, you're going to have emotional damage. If you leave this package, this body, this meat sack that you're in, and you have not fucked it up and used it fully, I'm sorry for you. Go ahead, drive headfirst into that brick wall, and then pick yourself up and go, whew, okay, brick wall, all right. <laughs> that was a lot. Maybe not the brick wall next time. Because the reality is, The three hours that that scene took changed my entire life and my perspective on kink and BDSM and gave me so many lessons in how to take care of myself and others. You know, if anyone wants to ask the question, because I get this question a lot, would you go back and change it? Absolutely the fuck not. Not one minute. I needed that disaster. 
I absolutely needed that formative fuck up because it gave me the ability to turn around and tell you 29 years later, don't do this. (laughs) Don't layer scenes in 18 ways. Yeah. Don't do a three hour interrogation scene when someone signed up for maybe an hour of runaway slaves. Don't do it. And I would not have been able to sit here and tell you that had I not gone through that. So the reality is um, that scene was incredibly difficult and incredibly valuable. And it took me a very long time to get back to the point where I had compassion for him again. But I was able to remember that he actually is not an evil Klansman racist, but he is someone who fucked up. And that's it. And that's as deep as it goes. And it took me a bit to get back to that, but I eventually did. Yes. Yes. He was absolutely traumatized. Um, there's a good and bad thing about the, the community as it is. It has a very short memory. Yeah. So regardless of how much of an asshole you are, if you wait around long enough, there'll be a new crop of people who don't know. And because we have this whole like privacy thing, secrecy thing, anonymity thing, respecting people's privacy is more important than respecting victim stories. People don't tell. Uh, That was not the case for this. It was told a lot. And part of it, part of what was fascinating to me in retrospect was that there was an even split between who thought it was my fault and who thought it was his fault. So he had plenty of support. Yeah. But it wasn't support that he liked because he didn't really think it was entirely my fault. You know, Um, I didn't think it was entirely his fault. Eventually. I did blame him for a while. I was like, you fucked up. And I looked around at the people in my inner circle and my leather family and like each of you fucked up. Because after a while, after I spoke to everyone, each of them was like, yeah, we could tell you were not there. And I was like, and no one said anything. Not even the dungeon monitor. The dungeon monitor didn't want to interfere because he's so high profile. He's so experienced. Of course, he knows what he's doing. Yes. I'm sorry, did that answer your question? Yeah, it was like after going to not like does he get back the confidence playing or does it like Yes. There's no here's the thing, scars exist, but most scars don't stop you from doing. You know? Good players take their hits, they take the scars, and they learn from them. They incorporate them in the same way I can look down at a scar and tell you the story of how I got this mark on my leg. I can tell you the story of how I got this branding on my ankle. It's there and it's real and I remember it and I don't forget it and I move on from it. Um, I don't think that I don't think that there's much that people do. Let me tell you this. I know a dominant who had someone die in their scene. And he's one of the kindest and most beautiful souls 
ever. He's one of five white men I trust. And he had someone, uh, his uh, play partner had a heart attack and died. Um, while he was, he didn't know, he didn't know it was a heart attack. He thought at first that it might've been an obstruction because he was in some heavy bondage and he has several slaves and is a beautiful person, well-respected, you know, in every community. And that's to me, I think possibly, I mean, arguably the worst thing. And he went on because he looked in his heart and knew that he did his best. And even though this guy fucked up and is an unbelievably chaotic mess, he knows that he's human and it took a while. But, you know, I mean, here's the other thing. Tops and dominance, like, have a... The analogy that I use is that they're like giant paper dragons that can breathe fire and look all big and harsh, but one spark and the whole thing goes up in smoke. Yeah. And, um, but at the core is that knowledge that you did your best. And I think that will pull them back. Cause even in this case, this chaotic dipshit did his best. That was not malicious. It was a lot of things. <laughs> it was irresponsible. It was stupid. It was presumptuous. I could go on, but malice, maliciousness, cruelty, it was not. If he had done that cruelly and deliberately, I would have done everything in my power to destroy him forever. But that was not the case. And this is another reason you take your time before you jump into these scenes, because I could have taken him out reputationally. And if you want to fuck with someone and give them that power, go right ahead. But it's very risky. Um, did that answer your question? Cool. Thank you. We had one here and then I'll get back here. Yes. Yeah. Um, fuck. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. Uh, we didn't because I was like, why didn't we? I was like, we were going to. I had to have my whole middle-aged thought process. I was going to play with him about three or four years later at another event. And uh, long story short, I was watching him do a medical and needle play scene where there was four tops. He was running the scene, but he was being assisted by a bunch of other tops and there was a woman who was getting a bunch of needles, piercings done, and then they were going to um, hit it with a, uh, yeah, the TENS unit. No, not TENS, the other one. What's it, the violet wand? Yeah, so they were going to use, like, needles, violet wand. Seriously fucked up, right? And it was what they had negotiated. He decided in the middle of the scene, because he always has these brilliant ideas, <laughs> that he was going to give her a little extra kick to the piercings with some rubbing alcohol. Because pouring alcohol over a piercing is incredibly painful, right? So she had a bunch of needles in her arms and he sprinkled rubbing alcohol over them and she's screaming and writhing around and he pours alcohol over her ear. 
She's screaming. Everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. He then picks up the violet wand. Here's the thing. <laughs> what does a violet wand do? So I'm standing, like, from where I am, the scene is happening about where you are. A violet wand is a static electricity charger. They were originally used to clear, like, you know, like, pimples and stuff on your face. Static electricity charge um, can ignite stuff like a puddle of alcohol. Yeah? So the next thing I see is this giant cold blue ball around this woman and all four tops grabbing her by her extremities and picking her up off of the table where a second blue ball erupts because the alcohol that was under her catches on because now there's alcohol, there's oxygen there. And again, the whole thing was maybe three seconds. But go one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. It's like, like, woof, woof, woof. And I was like, yeah, we're not, I'm not fucking bottoming to this. Dude. <laughs> so, no, we did not play again. I was like, I was like, dude, you need to go back to 101. What the fuck? <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. So that was. Again, here's the, this is another example of what the fuck I just said. If you're doing edge play, don't start ad-libbing. Don't, it's not an improv class. Stick to the script. Yes. She was fine. <laughs> she was fine. Uh, those flames don't burn very hot. You know, um, thankfully. Uh, she was startled. Certainly, she was in a bit of shock <laughs> because I can imagine like here she is and then she's in an unbelievable amount of pain and then she's being lifted up. And that's what that was her perspective. She was like, she was like, ha, why am I in the air? <laughs> so that was a lot for her. But yeah, she was OK. She was OK. Yes. Um, in certain paintings or in certain things, so. I think it's, it's for the example you had. I think it's sometimes hard to find persons that want to do certain stuff. Yes. And how do you feel about? Because uh, a friend of mine, we basically use the swinger scene mm. and their misogyny to build a scene that's kind of. Some people don't know that it's a scene for us. They're just misogynists. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fucking delicious, right? I just want to say that right now. Firstly, how do you feel about that? And secondly, is it, have you ever have you more experience with that? Uh, I'll say first of all, I think it's awesome. <laughs> Second of all, um, I highly encourage uh, sampling other sex-positive communities to get your needs met in the pervert community. Um, I have seen that happening. Um, I think I spoke about this in my other class where there was a, a BBC gangbang group in the Washington, D.C. area. You, guys, you have that here? We have a gangbang group. Okay. Uh, the BBC is not the British Broadcasting <laughs> Service. I mean, it is, but it is. <laughs> but it is also an acronym for Big Black Cock and for the fetish that, uh, you know, 
the old like gangbang group, like, you know, uh, like five black guys wearing little white socks and some tiny white woman, you know, getting fucked by five big strapping studly black men. It's like a universal fucking favorite everywhere. I worked for a while for um, penthouse.com after they took over alt.com and uh, adult friend finder and bondage.com. And all of those groups were, all those sites were run by the same media group. And um, I had to do a lot of, you know, what's so funny is the statistics are boring, even if they're dick statistics. After a while, it doesn't matter if these are stats on who's fucking what and what kind of porn people are watching. It's still boring as fucking hell. And that's how I learned, like, no, statistics are intrinsically horrible to me because I was like, these are like, you know, porn stats. And I'm like, uh, yay, look, the Dutch are out here watching ass fucking great. Click enter. (laughs) But the the like five black guys fucking a white woman thing, there's nowhere in the world where that's not in the top 20. Nowhere. And the thing is, in the kink and fetish community, I will tell you quite honestly, there's plenty of people for whom sex has become not about the dick for lots of reasons, whether it be like, you know, um, uh, 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 they can't get it up, you know, whether it's like anxiety, public, public, many people just can't fuck around other people. You have to not just be a pervert. You also have to be a specific kind of pervert. You got to be a pervert and an exhibitionist. Because otherwise, your dick's going to be like, fuck that, I'm out, I'll see you next week. You know? So for folks in the swinger community, you've got that baked-in exhibitionism, right? And saying to them, hey, you know, there was a big kink event that was happening. I was doing this class at that event, and the woman who was running the event, Tristan Taramino, um, called me the night before my class and was like, oh, can I talk to you? We've got a problem. So apparently, the swingers group heard that the perverts were in town and were like, we're going to do a BBC gangbang. So they rented a suite in the same hotel and they put up a thing and they're like, BBC gangbang room 608 and 609, come on through. And a lot of perverts were like, Oh my God, you're fetishizing black men. That's not okay. And so now there was this whole thing. And I was like, Oh God, of course I'm doing this class. So now I got to fucking talk about it. So I invited the gentleman from the big black cock group. And I invited the, you know, very kindly folks who had protested against the big black cock men. And I did my class and I did the thing. And like halfway in, I was like, we have a little lab we're going to do today. We're going to talk about a live action moment that's happening right now. And the first thing I said, as the folks were like, we're upset about the fetishization of black men. And I said, okay, um, the people who raise their hands against the fetishization of black men, are you black men? you're not and i was like so black men uh uh you fetishized yourself you're throwing this party right did some white woman twist your arm and they were like no 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 (laughs) i said okay so um so it was consensual they're like yeah i'm like okay so you can you you said this is what you want and you made that offering because part of what you want involves another demographic and you're in charge of that. And I said to the kind white people objecting, shut the fuck up. Stop it. They brought this shit on themselves. It's what they want. I said, if anyone in this scenario should be upset, it's a black man with a small dick. <laughs> and then this one dude raises his hand. He's like, yeah, I have a totally average sized penis. <laughs> And 
And the guy who runs the party is like, come through, brother. We got room for you, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it became kind of funny. But the thing is that, like, the, 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 the white people who raised this assumed that I was going to, like, be very strongly on their side because I do speak out very strongly against fetishizing people due to their bodies. But the thing is that they forgot the second part of what I always say, which is unless it's consensual. Because the reality is nobody wants to be nobody wants to be non-consensually objectified, right? Unless they do want to be non-consensually objectified because it's consensual non-consent, in which case they still fucking consented. <laughs> However, once consent is added to the mix, there is nothing you can't find someone who wants it. There is, it doesn't matter how grotesque you think it is. Someone's right now, as we look at our watches, someone's doing it. It's a big planet and everyone has a lot of time. Someone's doing that horrible thing you're thinking of right now. Probably 10 people. Let's just bust that out there. Cause there's how many billions of people on the planet right now? Yeah. <laughs> Someone is out here, like, you know, with an ovipositor in their ass watching horrible Japanese porn while they eat, you know, jackfruit. <laughs> Someone's doing it. <laughs> and right now they're like, ooh. <laughs> they're just like, they get that little energetic rush suddenly. I'm like, I see you. I see you. <laughs> um, did I answer the question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yes. Um, I wanted to know, you said that the scene ended very abruptly. Yes. And I wanted to ask if you think it would have been different for you if it was a slow ending and coming out of the scene. It definitely would have been. If he had, and this is another, this is another mistake. He didn't keep track of time. And by not keeping track of time, he got up to dungeon closing and there was no, that's, that's not acceptable. You know, he didn't, he didn't build into the scene enough time to cool down. And especially after a scene like that, because we had talked about aftercare. Yeah. We had made those negotiations that someone else was supposed to, like I had the person who was supposed to do the aftercare, but this is where I learned to add the caveat it can't be someone who was involved in the scene because the person who I was supposed to have my aftercare from was another of the subs in my household, but she had held my ankle down when I had escaped. And so now I was like, she's fucking disqualified. Fuck that bitch. I don't want her touching me either. You know? So um, now I know that if I'm doing, you know, this is why I say get an aftercare buddy, someone who's not involved in the scene, but who knows that the scene is happening and can talk to you. Right. Or even observes the scene, but they can't be involved in it. You know, and that's why I add that caveat because that's what happened to me. Um, so yes, definitely the exit to the scene is as in the exit, the end of the scene is more important than the scene. The most important moment in a scene is the end. It's the most critical moment. Why? Because it is when you are crossing out of that magical bubble you have created back into the default world. And that dismount is what you is what your body will remember the most. It's what your body remembers the most is that moment. Because 
there actually is no physical um, way to remember pain. Like, you know, you can sort of evoke a scent. Like if someone's like, what is the smell of a sidewalk after the rain? Like if someone's like, what does it feel like to break a bone? You kind of remember sort of like logically what it felt like, but it doesn't happen in the body in the same way. It's very different. And so our bodies don't want to remember pain. And so what happens when you come out of that scene is that that transition back into like, oh, I'm just Mo in this fucking like cold ass dungeon, you know, in San Francisco. And uh, this is my life and this is my body and this is who I am. Those are very important moments. So know how you're going to end the scene and give yourself plenty of time and energy and space to do what you need to do to come back to this world. Because it's a, it's a, isn't there's an alchemy there. There's a thing that's going on, and it's spiritual and it's mental and it's definitely also physiological. It's happening in the body and it's happening up here. So yeah, that's a good question because I know for a fact, I don't think that the damage would be different, but the outcome, that immediate aftermath, would have definitely been different. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You had a question? Yeah. So the scene you described uh, was in some sense very public because there were yes. people looking at it. And specifically for the replay, that's something where I wanna uh, basically how can you decide what's okay to do in such a public setting? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Anytime that you are doing a scene that is in public, well, you know, semi-public, obviously, you're not on the street. Please don't do that. <laughs> They did not consent. <laughs> um, I always talk to either the party host or the dungeon monitor or both. Right. Um, so do you have dungeon monitors here? Is this a thing here? No. no? Not really. So, it's yeah. In, in the U.S., typically at parties, they'll have a DM, which is, you know, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, you're like, oh, yeah, of course. Um, and uh, what the dungeon monitor's job is basically to be like um, civic police. Right. Uh, it's not their job to come and say, like, you're tying that wrong. Fix that rope. But it's their job, if a rope gets stuck and someone needs help pulling someone off of something, they should step in and help if help is needed. Um, and they are there also to make sure that the rules of the dungeon are being followed. So if you, if the dungeon has uh, uh, barrier rules, everyone has to either use a glove or a condom, and you see someone using not a glove or a condom, the dungeon monitor can come in and hand you a glove or a condom and be like, eh -eh. Um, the dungeon monitor also does have the power to stop a scene if there's something catastrophic going on. And so this is where the sort of power play comes in because you don't want that person stopping a scene just because they don't like it. You don't want them stopping a scene just because it looks brutal because someone might have like saved up for a year to get that seriously brutal scene. So there's a lot of sort of a, a dance between Are they policing or are they supporting or are they babysitting or whatever they're doing? But almost every party does have DMs. They, every, almost everyone does. And so I let the dungeon monitor know. And what the dungeon monitor will do is talk to the people involved and get like the clear eyed consent. Like, yes, this is what I have agreed to. Yes, this is what we're going to do. Um, in the case of a larger open party, the DM would then let the folks know either by having a sign up or having the scene be in a certain part of the dungeon, that this is something that's super fucked up. Um, what started happening in the Bay area is that they would just have edge parties. So there would be entire parties and they were like, don't walk into this fucking building. If you're not ready to see some fucked up shit, you know, 
And this is when people are just like, ah, nah, nah, because you know how we love them. Everyone's just like, Brick's not my Nazi uniform. Da, 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 da. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's when that shit happens. But I absolutely do encourage people to talk to the folks around them and not to do a scene that is, and this is, here's the thing again, what is edge play, right? Like we, this is the thing there was, there's an old quote and I don't know who it's from. It's like, you know, um, I don't know what, I, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it, <laughs> you know, like I, don't, I can't define what's pornographic, but when I see porn, I know it's porn, you know? And so there are scenes that are obviously edge play, but then there are scenes that are not obviously edge play. And when you move into that realm, like for example, there was one dungeon in the Bay area where no knife play was allowed at all is knife play. Well, knives have edges. So technically, yes, it's always edge play. Yes. But the reality is in the average party, if someone takes out a knife and starts, you know, like rubbing it on someone's body, no one's going to freak out. Like if there's no blood being drawn, right? Like then generally, you know, that type of knife play is not something you have to report. But this woman had had a traumatic experience and she did not want any goddamn knives, which is part of the reason why she opened her own dungeon. She's just like, I don't want knives. I guess, you know, she's a pro-dom. She's like, fuck it. It's just the next natural progression. So she opened her own dungeon where she could say no knives ever. Don't even have it in your bag when you walk in here. You know, and if you did not want to piss off Elizabeth, you did not fucking bring a knife. <laughs> you took it out of your bag before you came in. Um, so my feeling is that if you're going to be a good citizen of the land of perverts, then yes, you let people know so that they can make an informed choice. Right. Um, in the case of this particular scene, because it had been talked about so much in the weeks before, everyone knew by the grapevine. Right. So everyone locally was like, oh, yeah, he's going to be chasing Mo down until they do this scene. So once they saw us doing the scene, everyone knew what that scene was. Right. So in that case, that sort of happened by default. Thereafter, I did make it, you know, part of my teaching and part of my own personal rules that, yes, everyone needs to know beforehand. And if there's not a space in the dungeon where I can go and know that no one has to accidentally walk in and see that then yeah, then I would do that in that case. Thank you. Excellent question. Yes. Okay, I have one question. Because you told us that in some situations when you uh, have to suffer that pain and you want to avoid to dissociate, but usually it's bad that it's something that's not designed you shouldn't do. So is there a positive way to dissociate? Okay, here's my opinion, very controversial, very whatever, but my therapist said it was okay. <laughs> there is no technique that the body uses to protect itself that is quote unquote bad. Dissociation is a protective measure. Dissociation is your brain having a, um, what is that, like a, a, a circuit breaker. You know, like when your electricity overloads, a thing clicks and everything shuts down, right? That's good because now your toaster will still work. Your microwave is not overloaded and your laptop didn't melt down. And the thing is the dissociation meant that I did not fully have that mental breakdown that I might have had, had that scene continued with me being totally present. And so physically, 
If I know that the, the, the pain that is being inflicted on me is being inflicted by someone who knows what they are doing and I am actually safe, if I can click out, then that's actually kind of awesome. I do not consider it to be negative because I am doing it with an, an awareness and an intention. And my intention is I know that this type of whipping will not harm me long term. But I also know that I tend to get so in my head and so anxious that I'm pumping up the impact of every whip stroke. So if I can just take myself out here a little bit, I can take a little bit more. And I know that they will not harm me. They will stop when they know that it needs to stop because it's going to get to the edge of harm. And I trust them to do so either by observation or by reputation, they have gained my trust. Does that make sense? And I do not believe that that is wrong or bad because it's something that our brains naturally do to different extent, right? Sleep is a dissociation. I guess the question is uh, if there are some people that feel reverse and if there's something worse. I I would never say should or shouldn't. And yes, there are people who do it on purpose. My hope is that they communicate that to the top. And I my other hope is that the dissociative process is not something that you are doing when you are in top space. Unless you have an external handler. Um I had a friend who was very into, uh, what is it, feral play? You know, is this something that folks are familiar with here? Feral basically means that you are going into an animal state. Like a feral cat is a cat that is no longer used to people. So if you're a feral person, you're a person who's no longer used to people, right? To go feral is to basically sink into this mindset that's not the, you know, it's the lizard brain, as they say, the back of the neck brain, right? And... She wanted to do this from the perspective of the top. She wanted to be the predator who was tearing apart the prey. And the thing is, the predator tearing apart, you can't walk up to the line and be like, excuse me, we need to clear this table. They don't give a fuck. (laughs) And so the way that she played in this way as a dominant was that she wore a harness, like a chest harness. And her sub, who was the only person she really trusted, would yank it when the scene was over. He would literally pull her off of her bottom. And that was how the scene ended, which is super hot, frankly. <laughs> to have this like snarling bitch and this like person like dragging her off for you. And you're just like, <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> super hot. You can do almost anything you want in the scene as long as you have imagination and patience. Right. So to say, oh, you shouldn't dissociate, shouldn't whatever, like, no, what if that's the hottest fucking thing ever? Find a way to make it safer. And remember that what we're doing is never going to be 100 percent safe. And there, I, there's almost nothing I would say that someone should never do. Because I can I have a very vivid imagination and I can probably imagine a way where it's OK. <laughs> and the reality is. 
the people who are saying stuff like don't ever dissociate, it's dangerous to play with someone who dissociates are people who um, lack that skill set. They don't know how to do it. And so they say you shouldn't do it. And I do not believe that just because one person doesn't know how to do something, it should not be done. I don't believe that because something is extremely dangerous, it should not be done. It should only be done with a complete knowledge of the danger and accepting responsibility for the potential explosion or meltdown and being truly understanding of what the potential damage is, you know, and take it to the furthest possible, like imagine it through to the point of death and then think if it's worth it. And maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Did that answer your question? Cool. Thank you. That's a good question. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. My formula for that is that the top has 100% of that responsibility and the bottom has 100% of that responsibility. Everyone takes complete responsibility for both themselves and their partner, which sounds physically impossible, but it isn't. Because if what you were saying is, I take complete ownership of you and your fuck up, and you take complete ownership of me and my fuck up, if there's a fuck up, the requirement is to immediately be in a state of compassion. Does that make sense? Your default is to say, I understand that you're a person who just fucked up, not that you fucked up and start the finger pointing and pushing the responsibility away. It is my belief that everyone bears the full weight of the responsibility. And the trick that's built into your question about who's responsible for bringing the person back is it's the person who's made the journey who's responsible. No top can actually bring me back. All the top is doing is providing a space for me to land. I have to pilot the plane. They are not doing that. They can't be in here. And I have to remember that I also am responsible for doing that reciprocally. I am responsible for giving the top a place to land. Because if I don't, we get the fucking clusterfuck that was the end result of this race play scene that I talked about, where he had no landing strip because I did not do the work ahead of time. because so I didn't know I had to, you know, so I also failed him in my ignorance. True fact. And I don't blame myself for that. You know, that was a, a, a that was an accident that was born of ignorance and clumsiness. It wasn't a malicious attack. And neither of us knew what the good end to that scene would be at the time. But the reality is it's important for everyone before you do the scene to like sit 
in a clear eyed, calm and sober environment and say, this is really dangerous what we're going to do. There's a ch- what happens if you're so pissed at me, you don't want to talk to me for a week. What happens then? Right? Like it might be it might be for example, you 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 write an email to each other in that clear calm moment where you say I love you, you're awesome. And it might be weird for a while, but please read this until I'm ready to talk to you. That could be the thing that gets them through that awkward moment. Connect deeply and truly to the point where both of you can say, yes, I hear you. Yes, I see you. Yes, I trust you before you get into the scene. And that's still not a fucking guarantee, man. That's just taking out an insurance policy. (laughs) It doesn't mean the accident's not going to happen. It means that you have recourse when the accident does happen. Does that make sense? Cool. Would you recommend No, absolutely the fuck not. I don't care how stable they tell you they are. I don't care if they genuinely are stable and you just don't believe it. Like that's enough. Because here's the thing. If you go into that, if you push yourself into topping a scene where you do not feel 103% good about it, is you're inviting in that squiggly weird energy. And you don't want that there. Tops and dominance do not fall to peer pressure. Do not become a vending machine for someone else's hot sex and pain. We're not worth it. You matter. You are not there for our pleasure alone. You also are vulnerable and scared. And I want to really deeply acknowledge that and feel that and let that land in the room because this is so rarely spoken about. And if you have that hinky weird feeling, don't fucking do the scene. I don't care if it took you six months to get the scene together. I don't care if it has taken you five years to do that Maria von Trapp escaping the Nazis in the Sound of Music scene. I don't care if you imported goats from Tyrol for that scene. Don't give a shit. I don't care if you have finally found grandma's fucking schnitzel hammer. (laughs) Oh my God. There's a whole, there's a company that actually sells these giant schnitzel hammers as impact toys and Georg lost his mind. (laughs) And I was like, sir, that is six pounds. We are not putting that in our luggage. (laughs) I'm not carrying it through the airport. Respectfully. (laughs) But for real, y'all, be compassionate with yourselves as tops. You know, there is often so much pressure to perform and do the thing. But the reality is this can come back and bite you in the butt in a way that no other type of play can. Because this is the deep, heavy shit. However... Sometimes it's not the deep, heavy shit. Sometimes these scenes are so fucking ridiculous and hilarious, you can't even believe it. I, um, the second time I did a, uh, the second and third time I did a race play scene was actually with my crazy ass friend, Steve, the evil, most evil son of a bitch I've ever known. Um, uh, who was also, uh, from New York. So we were both from, you know, New York city and, um, and all of that. And, we were doing a, a scene. It was going to be like a humiliation scene and the race play scene. So specifically racial humiliation. Um, I do not like humiliation play. I'm like, I 
have a whole humiliation soundtrack running in my head already. I don't need that. Absolutely the fuck not. No. Um, but I wanted to push my boundary there. And so we talked about it and he's like, I'll do it. I'm like, of course you will. Cause you're evil. <laughs> so we're going to do this race play scene. And it was like very straightforward. It's basically like, I'm going to kick you on the ground and say these bad things to you. It was not fancy. So we're doing the scene and, um, it's very intense and he's saying horrible things and I start crying and then he's like, has me on the ground and there's like beating and choking and wrestling and, you know, he, I had like, I have one thing that's on my hard limit list that I made an exception to say he could do it for this scene because it's so viscerally problematic for me. I was like, let's just cheat and have this scene be extra horrible. So I was like, fine, you can spit on me if you have to. (sighs) I have a thing. And so he's doing the scene. It's maybe 20 minutes. Like that's how, like we went from zero to 60, like instantly, boom. And I'm on the ground and I'm crying and he's spitting on me and I'm grossed out and I'm horrified. And it's, you know, and there's like a bunch of people standing around watching because they're just like, (laughs) and he finally like gets me and I'm like, and like on the ground, he's leaning over me and his sweat is dripping on my face, which is like the worst thing ever. Oof. Hate bodily fluids on me. I hate it. It's skin pee. It's your skin peeing. So he leans down. (laughs) Stay with me because I'm going to have to explain this to you. He leans down and is like, has his nose right against my fucking nose. And he goes, You know what, you fucking nigger bitch? You're only worth three fifths of a vote. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) what? I was like, dude, what? And he's like, this is hard. It's hard. I had to go to the racial slur database (laughs) to find shit to call you. (laughs) And I'm like crying, like on my side, like, howling fucking like can't believe it the origin of this comment is back in the day when the slave states of america were trying to they were forming like how they were going to vote uh slave obviously slaves weren't voting because we weren't people however we mattered in terms of legislative districts and money and stuff so the decision was made (laughs) that each Negro was worth three-fifths of one vote for their owner. Yeah, yeah. And so the whole, the three-fifths thing is a big deal for African-Americans. It's a big deal. So when he broke that out in the thing, I was just like, holy shit, that's ridiculous. Bro. (laughs) So when people are like, can it be funny? I'm like, hell yeah, it can be funny. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. So yeah, it, it doesn't have to be some heavy, fucked up shit. Why do people do it? My why is that it scared me and turned me on. There's very few things in my life that actually invoke fear and eroticism. Right? Not many things scare me. But um, living life as a black person in America can be very scary. You know? I cross the street if I see a group of cops on the block ahead of me. 
I have uh, 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 serious anxiety attacks if I see lights behind me on the highway, except when I'm here. Oh, my God. I was driving in Germany and I was like doing like 110 and like some cop pulled up. I'm like, ah! <laughs> poor Derek is like, darling. <laughs> I was like, I'm speeding past the cops. <laughs> I was like, you will never understand how awesome this is. <laughs> but the reality is, that what started happening for me is not that I was like, I don't give a fuck about racism. It's that I felt bad for racists. I started to feel sorry for, for, for people who had hate in their heart. And part of that was because I felt sorry for this motherfucker after he fucked up so colossally. I felt bad. I was like, wow, that was super fucked up. You fucked up and now... I can have compassion for you in that way. And I sort of exponentially broke that out further. And I said, I'm putting racists out of the people I want to throw hatred at. And I'm throwing like, I'm putting them in the people I want to throw compassion at because you're living the shittiest life. Some of the most amazing humans on the world are now off limits to you because you're a dumbass. That's pathetic. You're not even worth my hatred. I'm just going to pray for you. <laughs> Yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So one of the one of the things that I had mentioned this other class, and it was it was one that we it was, I was talking specifically about diversity, and this also is going to be helpful uh, if you are a person of pallor or paleness people of paleness, and it so happens that you are ever involved in a scene with a person of color, or if you're doing any kind of play of people with darker skin, and this is less going to be an issue for you. But when I first came into the scene, I realized that so many, um, so many types of play that were being taught, like rope bondage, piercing, um, flogging, all of these things were racist. They were being taught on, on a racist lens. And it is because of the following. My skin, my body, does not react the same way that the skin and the body of a white person will. Anyone here? Rope people here? Yeah. What is, you know, when you someone's in rope, you're checking for temperature. You're checking for um, skin changes, color changes, right? Let's say someone is roughly the, the, the shade of my jeans. Are you ready to look for what that skin change is? I've had friends of mine say black people don't blush. We can't blush. And I'm like, uh, it's not that we can't, we just don't in front of you. <laughs> but it's far more subtle for the white eye. And if you were unaccustomed to this, you could fuck someone up real bad because you just don't know. So do not take the information that you have had about how to play with white skin and bring it over to brown skin. And this is going to be the same psychologically. Living in anywhere, being alive is different for me than it is for you. We will never have equal lives. I will always be less valued than you. The police will always look for you before they will look for me. You will always make more money than I will. 
Yeah, this is the reality. And so playing with us is going to be different for those same reasons. The type of shit that maybe hits you in one way will hit me in a very different way. There's a huge arc of talk in the communities about uniform play. Because for years, people were like, it was flagrantly obvious that Nazis was controversial. But if you go to the Folsom Street Fair in New York or any Pride celebration, you know what you see everywhere? Cops. It doesn't turn me on. In fact, after having fended off a sexual assault from a member of the uh, North Hollywood Police Department, I do not want to fucking see cops in my sexy time spaces. But that's a controversial opinion, and I'm being hypersensitive by saying it. Right? And so when you are playing, it goes, it is, it includes, and thank you very much for reminding me, those subtle indications of the skin, the nail beds, Play with the person very gradually first. Do some impact play over rope, under rope, around rope. Do some piercings on very small areas and see how the scarring happens. Most people can get pierced without even thinking about it. I had a piercing scene done. Now, keep in mind the needles were huge. They were the size of the lead inside of a pencil. They were big. But for most people, the main consideration is pain. I wound up having scars for about four years. Now, what was great is that the woman who did it was a physical therapist and incredibly anal retentive. And so it was dope as hell. <laughs> like I had on the back of both legs, like from the back of the knee all the way down, like two, like two dots, two dots, two dots, two dots, two dots, two dots. So it looked really cool. People were like, I was just like, maybe I should get this as a tattoo. This is kind of dope. Um, but that was how I discovered that needles could leave scars because it's in, there's an assumption in the, it's in the piercing community that needles are completely like no shadow play, come in and out. You can do what you want, but that is not true. It's not true for everyone. For people of Irish descent also, they get crazy scars, some of them as well. Also people of Mediterranean descent. Also a lot of people of like Ashkenazi Jewish descent, you know, this is why race is important. This is why, you know, there's, there was a huge movement starting from when I was a kid to be colorblind. That was the ideal. We're all just humans. Race is a construct, et cetera. I'm like, it's a pretty enduring construct, but okay. That construct keeps landing on my foot, but okay. And I said, I don't want you to be colorblind. I want you to not be racist. How about you see my color and you're cool? That's far more interesting to me. I don't want blindness. I want to learn about people who are living in the, in the fucking like mountains in Nepal and how they're different than me, but how we are also the same. It's that blend that makes me interested and that gets me going and that I find fascinating personally. So it's not about erasing the differences between us. It is about celebrating them and exploring them and respecting them and possibly even fetishizing them if it is welcome, right? There's nothing wrong with that as long as it is consensual. Um, when did we start? It's been two hours. Okay. Whew. Um, yeah. I think I have said most of what I wanted to say. Um, I will open the floor for questions, comments, thoughts, 
free range shit or if you read the description and you're like, this bitch did not say this fucking thing. I want you to say this thing, bitch. <laughs> Feel free to bring that up now. Yes. Absolutely. It sucks. It sucks. Um, when I first got into the community in the Bay Area, the first five black people I saw were men. And they were doms. And they all had anywhere from two to seven white submissives. And uh, my first dom was white. And, you know, that wasn't an issue for either of us. But it did become, here's the thing. I grew up in New York City, so I'm very used to all sorts of configurations. You know, I'm used to being the only Christian among a bunch of Muslims. I'm used to being the only girl amongst amongst a bunch of boys. Uh, I have always, I've always and often been an outlier when it comes to social groups. So that doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. The main thing was I wanted people to commiserate with. I wanted to have other people who were like coming from a somewhat similar experience to mine, some kind of cultural togetherness <clears throat> that I could just, you know, you have those conversations without saying anything. Like, I just wanted to be able to have that, you know, like when some white person said some crazy shit, I just wanted to be able to be like, girl, <laughs> and feel better. <laughs> like, I was like, just, that's all I need, you know. Um, the irony for me was once the community started shifting in terms of people uh, coming out to stuff, because there were plenty of black kinksters, they were just not involved in the scene, right? Um there was a black submissive women's tea group that started up. And I cannot tell you how awesome it was to be able to just sit in a room with a bunch of other black women and talk shit and share stories <clears throat> until I started teaching about race play. And then a vote was taken and I was voted out of the group. And so the devastation that occurred for me after years of working on my guilt and shame, just about desiring slavery and submission to then find my community and then find me in my community and then to be rejected by that, by some people in that demographic was incredibly fucked up. So I've had a very mixed experience. <clears throat> I've had a very mixed experience. Um, I will say that the, the, the people who have been uniformly the most supportive of me have been quote unquote vanilla friends. Vanilla people <clears throat> never differentiated between race play, edge play and other play. They were like, it's fucked up. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, thank you. <laughs> so, Part of, part of what I started to embrace was the fact that I can't, we have a saying in the U.S., all skin folk ain't kin folk. And that means everyone who shares our hue of our skin is not necessarily our brother. And so I had to learn to really soak in and absorb the connections I felt with other African-American women as being very sacred, but not something that I could rely on. And so what I started doing was looking for the people who I could count on, and there weren't a lot. And um, 
many people I thought I could count off have fallen by the wayside over the past decades because people can disappoint you at any moment, you know? Um, So I spent, I do spend a lot of my time like that. You know, I am with my husband in the contemporary music scene where I've been the only black person in a concert hall, which is very weird, (laughs) but it very much delights my husband because he's, you know, he's just like, my slave is the best person in this whole place. He is so proud and so happy. And that's what I need. Was your, did that answer your question? Or you can do the same shit other people do and say, yes, yes, hello, I'm here doing it. And do it even bigger. Now, if you're not prepared to live like that, yeah, it's harder. But I eventually started saying, you know what? I got, I got so tired of the judging that I just said, if you're going to fucking judge me, I'm going to do it twice. Once for you and once for me. <laughs> this bothers you, I'm going to fucking do it. Then I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to take that visibility because the implication of visibility is no one else is here. Why? You have to now look at why I'm the only one here. And this was what I leaned into, was poking everyone in the eye with it. Why am I the only one here? Why did you only see that girl at one party and then never saw her again? Because that's generally what was happening. People would just drive through. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be like the lichen on the rock. I'm going to cling here regardless. So there may be one other little piece of lichen over there. And now there's 12 of us. And now there's 20 of us. And eventually we hit the momentum where we have an entire conference called Black Beat that is African-American centric, run by black folks, for black folks and whoever we decide to bring. (laughs) So it's rough and it sucks. And... It also means that you are automatically a fucking badass pioneer and doing the Lord's work, frankly, to allow people to bask in your magnificence, even though they are hardly worthy. You didn't hear that. (laughs) Thank you for being here. It means a lot to me as well. Awesome. Thank you. Someone else had a hand. Yes. Of course. In some. Sure. I don't know a lot about the scene here in Austria because the last time I came here, the only clubs we could find also allowed smoking. And I was like, absolutely the fuck not. I'm not. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I will say that there is there there is a great deal more attention paid in a lot of scenes to um, exhibitionism. This is the thing. The public scene is for a specific fetishist. The public scene is for exhibitionists and um, and uh, voyeurs. The scene is for exhibitionists and voyeurs. If you are neither of those to 
any degree, the only reason you're going to come out and play is because you cannot at home. Like your apartment doesn't allow it or there's kids or the neighbors or the walls are too thin or whatever the fuck it is. In which case, those people are pushing themselves to be in the dungeon. They don't really want to be there, but there's no other place to do their fucked up shit. And so what you get in America is that exhibitionist thing. People are really, they want you to watch their scene. They want you to see the scene. And so this is how you get the sensation of, of intensity. Everyone's got to do the next big thing. Everyone's got to, people plan their scenes in terms of like what equipment they're going to use, what time they're going to hit the dungeon, blah, 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 all of that. Scenes also vary a great deal area to area, state to state. And they vary again according to what sort of demographic. The gay men's scene is going to feel very different than the women's scene, than the sort of pan, quote unquote, pansexual scene, which is really just like relaxed cishet people. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that's what's actually fucking going on there, you know. And so the 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 main thing I want to stress is that playing in public and being in the scene and doing this shit has a, has a fetishistic aspect to it that not everyone possesses. Not everyone wants people to watch their scene. Some people are very shy and very private, you know? Um, so that's the shift there. The thing about sex is that first of all, those laws are, are different in different States. So some States you can fuck wherever fuck you want. And in some States you cannot, we have this fucking nutso, Puritan leftover bullshit that we're coming down from. So for example, if you're in a strip club and they have nothing on the bottom, you can't also serve alcohol. <laughs> Titties fine. Ass and pussy not. I don't. <laughs> it's just the fucking way it is. It's just the way it is. Um, many BDSM clubs are in places where they had been zoned, zoning having to do with what you are and are not allowed to do in a space. And they're zoned for, for example, um, like this might be zoned for uh, uh, industrial use, right? And so maybe you can twist the laws to also have events here. But if someone finds out that people are having sex in an industrial use space, you don't have a permit for that. So then it becomes about money, right? And most of our larger events take place in hotels, in like, you know, um, uh, uh, conference halls and hotels. And so hotels then have the issue of the health department becomes a health issue. You can't have people fucking in a, in a, in a place where like in 12 hours, people are going to be, um, talking about the Dow Jones stock exchange, you know, no wonder why there's like pubes sprinkling down from the ceiling. Welcome to my brain. It's like this all the time. <laughs> so that's part of it. Um, the other thing that I have found that varies from scene to scene is where alcohol plays in, alcohol and other drugs. Um, the general thing in the U.S. is that um, alcohol and play don't mix. You don't, you don't drink and play. It's a bad idea. Um, whereas in the UK, for example, it's 180 degrees. You don't, you don't eat. I did a class in London a few years ago where the host was serving champagne to the guests so that they could loosen up. I'm like, all they have to do is sit and listen. You need, you need a fucking, you need a, you need a, a drink for that. Y'all need Jesus. Like something is seriously going on here, you know? 
Um, so that's also an aspect of it. But I think also for a lot of kinky folks, what they do in terms of SM is foreplay for fucking later. So a lot of people will come out to the dungeon, do their scene, do their thing, get horny, run home and fuck because of performance anxiety, because of whatever else. Um, for yet another group of the population, um, their sexuality is such that the kink is their sex, right? If someone has uh, erectile dysfunction, um, if someone is on hormones that are shifting the way their body is working and they're trying to figure out what does and does not fit with their current identity, they can play and have an entire sex life that is not generally focused. So they have a new type of freedom there that is offered in the community in a way that's not weird, if you were a swinger and I go to a swinger event and not fuck, people would be like, what? <laughs> but if you're a pervert, you can do all kinds of stuff and no one even blinks an eye because it's not your business what's going on in someone else's pants. It's like, can you rig? Can you be rigged? Fantastic. You know, so it gives a lot of people a lot of freedom. Uh, does that answer your question? Awesome. Thank you. And I saw another hand over here. I think, yeah. I just hate <gasps> no, please interrupt. Um, because yeah, um, we uh, for the open house that is continually going to go after this, uh, people are probably slowly going Ruby. to arrive. Okay, cool. Well, we can wrap it up. But, I mean, by all means, yeah, yeah. continue. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of cool. us is just gonna awesome go catch the people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, what was I gonna say? Uh, 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 what was the yes? Absolutely. Wants to explore and so on, and like a, maybe some things that that's super extreme for them. And, uh, yeah. There's 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 always going to be that 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 cultural shift uh, when people come into the dungeon because the kink space is a is its own culture and it's drawing from all of them because humans are in it. One of the things I encourage people to do is to acknowledge that, like what you just said, say that out loud. So often people of color don't feel that um, people of paleness give a shit. We don't think you care because you don't demonstrate caring. And so um, I had a friend on Facebook, for example, who is everyone uses social media differently. And her social media was always like, I saw a funny thing. This funny thing happened to me. Isn't this so funny? Here's a funny meme. And uh, we were in the middle of... Um, pick an unarmed black person being murdered by the police. Pick one. And um, I was like, how can she fucking not say anything about this? Like, I want you to say that you care about this, that this matters to you. You know, this is why when people diss Black Lives Matter, like as performative, performative allyship, I'm like, then perform it. 
You're calling out performative allyship, but what are you doing instead of it? At least if you're performing it, I, I know you have an awareness because you're doing the dance. And the thing is, if you do the dance long enough, eventually you learn the steps. And eventually the steps become reflexive. And eventually you are that dance. That's my belief, which is why I never step on anyone for performative anything. But the thing is that if I don't see you saying it, I don't know. I found out and I was so pissed at this bitch for like months. I was like, and then she wrote to me and asked me about, I had posted something about a a charity and she wrote to me and was like, Hey Mo, um, I just saw you posting saying, um, I just made a donation. Um, she, she wanted some more information on it because she had been doing a project with her daughter for the past year where she and her daughter had been finding charities that specifically worked on anti-racism work. And her daughter had been doing the research and then they would meet about it. And then the daughter would make the decision as to what charity they would donate to. She didn't post about that on public me- on social media. So I didn't know, but that's fucking badass. She's taking responsibility for her kid and showing her child. What the fuck is up? I could not ask anything more from a white person. And I was like, damn, you know, I was making an assumption based on the way she used her social media. So I stopped that. I was like, I'm gonna drop it because I don't know everyone's heart. Right. In the same way, I don't know if anyone is actually racist. I don't know if anyone's actually doing the work. Um, But when you do talk about it, when you do reach out, when you get over the idea that you as a white person saying to that person of color, hey, I see you. Um, I know I can't know your thing. But if there's something I can do to support you, if I can help you somehow, just let me know. Thanks. That's fucking huge, man. But y'all are so afraid of fucking up. You don't do it. We're not going to slice your throats open if you offer to love us. And if someone does kick and scream, if someone does push back, take a deep breath and understand that that person has experienced so much pain that you will never know. And have compassion for them from over here. But the best thing that folks can do is to say, I see you and I would love to support you. And maybe that support looks like the next time you see that person that shares their background at an event and they're the only one there and they're maybe not going to come back because they don't see themselves. You say, y'all are here. Just wait. Hold on. Y'all, you're here. You've already, you've already been here. Find the people who share their demographic. Find me. Find the other indigenous pervert. Find the woman in, in South Africa who is a, a South African black leather title holder. Point them in the directions of the people you have found who reflect them. If you've been here a little bit longer, help them find their people. That's something you can do. It was white people who told me that one of the most revered and long-term members of the leather community was a black woman who openly and proudly identified as a slave. White people told me that. I didn't spit in their face and say, how dare you? You think we all know each other? Fuck you. I said, cool. And I fucking researched her and I felt free because now I knew that she was there. Do that. Be the person. Be the ambassador. And take the hit if they don't want to hear it from you because it won't kill you. And you will know you tried. And you have that capacity and you have that ability and you have room in your heart for that love. And you can take that hit if that hit comes through. You can do it. I believe in you. Me and the tiny potato. <laughs> have you seen that meme? 
I love it. There's this meme. It's just like this little like kawaii little potato. And it's like, I'm a tiny potato and I believe in you. You can do the thing. And I'm just like, thank you, tiny potato. <laughs> you had a question? Ah, uh, cool. At least me feeling sometimes that if I um, ask somebody how how can I help them, I'm sort of singling them out, and uh, as a, as a consequence, they might feel less comfortable. Here's the thing: you're not responsible for their feelings. First, second, um, not everyone wants your help, um, but some people do, and it's hard. What what I'm asking y'all to do is hard, and I fucking acknowledge that. And the reality is, um, when you go into it, ready to take the no, you'll be okay when you do get the no, but you'll also be super stoked when you get the yes, right? And you have to come into it from a perspective of saying, I can't know your shit. I don't know your shit. I know I don't know your shit. I'm acknowledging that. I do know some shit. It might help you figure your shit out. I'm offering my shit. Goodbye. That's it. And then you like let it flow, let flow out in the breeze, no expectation. And if they're like, fuck you, you know, honky, I don't care, fuck off, then, you know, fine. But if they do say, yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say, because the reality is the fact that you're making that offer means that you have done some work yourself. It means that you are working on what you can do best, which is to try to offer help and to try to make space, you know. And so that's, that's the best you can do, I feel. And just don't be afraid of the no or the rejection because I promise you it will not kill you. And I do also promise you that the people who receive it will receive it with such gratitude because they were seen. And that's so huge. It's such a big fucking moment when I, when I, when someone who doesn't share my history or background or DNA track says, wow, I know this is hard. Is there something I can do to make it less hard for you? Wow. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. To be honest, I'm a little bit confused because in the beginning you said we should not talk um, in that way and not approach it. I was specifically, yes, I was. So and now you're saying you should help. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I, let me, I, I was, what I was very specifically talking about was approaching people of color to do these types of scenes where, where the, the, that's all I was talking about. So like, for example, if I wanted to do a, um, uh, a plantation scene and you heard that I wanted to do a plantation scene because I was talking to you about doing a plantation scene, it's my personal opinion. It's not cool for you to be like, I heard you were doing a plantation scene. Like, let us come to you on that on that page. But in terms of opening spaces, offering support, seeing where people might want it, that I do encourage. Is that is that clear? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, because because probably you are not the only person in the room who is sort of like, huh, hmm, how does that reconcile? Wait a minute. <laughs> yes. Um, I can't remember the name. There was a play on Broadway. <laughs> Slave play. Did it change how how in the because in Europe I don't think a lot of people in general even in in 
slave play because here slave play is probably differently connotated. Yes. So um, I don't think people reg register that much mm -hmm. that there was this thing going on. Oh my god, it was huge. Did it change the conversation in the museum scene as well? Or? Didn't really. <sighs> I don't think it changed the conversation in the BDSM scene. I think I had basically been hammering this and dragging this corpse around for like 18 years by that point. Um, Slave Play was a play by a playwright, a very young playwright, Jeremy O'Harris. And the premise of this play is that two scientists, a uh, woman of color and uh, I'm sorry, two women of color who are scientists have created a new type of therapy um, for interracial couples who are experiencing sexual dysfunction. And basically they explore their taboo fantasies. And then it's, it's presented as though you are watching a weekend long workshop of these three couples who are all processing the thing. So the first couple is uh, uh, an African-American woman and a white British man. And the first opening scene is basically this plantation role play scene where he comes in and he's, the thing is he's clearly uncomfortable You know, and so, you know, and then the second uh, couple is an African-American man and a white and a, a white American woman. And the third couple is a uh, gay couple with a beige and a black man. <laughs> the beige is important because you're like, he's not white, but you're not sure what his non-whiteness is. Right. And the play hit Broadway and just it set the fucking country on fire, you know, um, because of the obvious things. And when I heard about it, I was like, <sighs> and the, the playwright is spicy as a motherfucker and he's on Twitter. And I was like, you know, um, I saw the play and it blew me away. I was, it is my, it is second only to hair as what I figure feel is the perfect show. It's my second favorite play of all time. I've seen it three times after I saw it the first time I was like, Oh, first of all, spouse Meister needs to see this. I didn't want to take him because I'm always like, let me see it first. Um, and I was on Twitter. And the thing is that there was, her, there's a monologue that the black woman has in the show that I was just like, he literally just scra scraped my brain. Fuck you. And so I was on Twitter and I was like, first of all, bitch, you owe me lunch because you stole my shit and put it on fucking stage in front of God and everybody without even asking first. And like a day and a half later, he was like, I'm going to be, um, I'll be home next month. Let's have, let's, let's have lunch. And I was like, part of me is like, ah, part of me is like, of course, duh. <laughs> so I made a reservation at like this incredibly gorgeous, super fancy fucking restaurant overlooking Central Park. It's amazing. And I've like got my like dope suit on and he's, he's like a fashion maniac. So he comes in with his like, you know, like, Balenciaga flip-flops and, you know, his plaid fucking suit and his afro's ridiculous and his fucking glasses are insane and we're having the best fucking chat. And he says, I have to tell you, when I was writing Slave Play, first of all, he was in college. <laughs> he was fucking 19 or 20 when he wrote this show. And he said, while I was writing the show, he said, I opened my email one day and a friend of mine was like, have you seen this article in the New York Times? And it was the article in the Times about me and Georg. The New York Times wrote an article about us. And he started getting this email 
over and over and over again because everyone's like, this couple is doing the thing you're writing about. So while he was writing the play, he was reading my website and looking at my shit. And I was like, you really did? He's like, you know how we do. I was like, you son of a bitch. (laughs) But um, I didn't steal any of my shit, but like I was in his consciousness while this play was being birthed. And I was just like, that is such a, what a small and weird world. Holy shit. But what it did was it brought to light how little people understand consent. And that's what this show is about. It's about consent. And it's about the consent that the white man needs to obtain for himself to do what she wants. And it's about how hard it is for him as well as how hard it is for her. And, and, and you don't hear that story. And like, I loved it for the fact that that was, that was one of the themes that was presented there was that he did not want to be that because that's not who he was, but he wanted to do it for her. Um, so it was very remarkable. I don't, I don't think among the perverts, I think among kinky people, we folks were just glad that we did had something that wasn't 50 shades, you know, that actually did talk about, you know, that, that, that the central at the core of it, not the stated theme, but the core theme when you drill all the way down is consent is what happens when we give ourselves permission to explore what happens when we give ourselves permission to be evil you know, um, what happens when we give ourselves permission to receive evil, right? Um, yeah, it was one of, the, one of the hard truths I figured out, and it took me years after that scene I described. Um, I was super disappointed with myself, and I couldn't figure out why. I thought, was it because I didn't say word? And I sat with that for years, and I was like, no, that wasn't it. And I finally realized the reason that I felt horrible was because I gave up at the end was because when he said, I'm going to cut you open. My first thought was just fucking kill me. You know, I always saw myself as this incredibly powerful, badass fighting to the bitter end. And in that moment I gave up and I was disgusted. And that's a horrible thing to think about yourself. And I didn't fully reconcile that until uh, probably about two years ago, right? When I tell you I'm still learning from the scene, it's fucking real. I didn't realize that I still had that resentment against myself for quote unquote giving up. But the reality is if you're in a situation where there is no option, taking your own life is a viable option. I personally feel that's my belief. I feel that people have a right to die. I feel that if someone's sick, they should be able to leave if they want. And the idea that um, being dead is better than being a chattel slave, I don't disagree with that. I don't know what choice I would make. And now I had a little bit of information. Maybe my choice would be just kill me. Maybe my choice would be I would give up. Maybe I'm not fucking Harriet Tubman. And is that okay? And I didn't know, I didn't think it was okay until I had a conversation with my mother a few years ago and we were talking about something. And she said, did I ever tell you about what happened with my name when I was in school? And I said, no. And um, mom is like full boomer. So she's coming up in the, in the, in the fifties. And 
she was learning cursive, how to write in script. And her teacher comes over. My mother's name is Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. And the teacher says, oh, Marion, that's not how you spell it. Because in America, there are two spellings for this name, M-A-R-I-A-N, Marion, and M-A-R-I-O-N, Marion, which is usually for boys. And so my mother was using the boys spelling. And so the teacher was like, it's an, it's an A, not an O. And my mother said, no, this is how it is. And the teacher says, that can't be right. If you don't fix it, you're going to get a mark off. And I'm like, did you tell her to fuck herself? And she's like, no, I changed it. I didn't want to get a bad grade. And I just went home and told my mom. And I'm like, oh, oh Grandma Carter fucked shit up, I'm sure. And she said, so I went home and I told her what had happened. I said, what'd she say? She said, well, she's a teacher. She must know, change it. And I was just like fucking dumbfounded, just silent on the phone. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's your name. Your mother gave you that name. Your father gave you that name. That's your name. How could you back away from that? How could your mother say that? How could you possibly? And as I'm freaking out, my mother's like, my mother was raised by sharecroppers who were raised by slaves. If you wanted to live, you did what white people told you. And I had not realized until that point how close this is to my body. I was like, holy fucking shit. And then I flash back to the shame I felt when I quote unquote gave up. And I said, you know, what's interesting is that that scene put me into touch with a section of my ancestry that I had not sat with. There are many ways to survive. Keeping your head down and keeping silent and being obedient is a way to survive. And here's the thing. Obviously, they were successful because I'm alive. So how dare I spit on their sorrow and their pain and their coping mechanism? <sighs> that was some heavy shit. And I have a much more compassionate view of myself. And I was able to look at that moment and say, you did what you needed to do. You wanted that pain to be done. And that's what your soul cried out for, was for it to be over. And that's not weakness. It's not weak when a soldier runs into a fucking, you know, oncoming cannon fire in order to fight for their country because that's what they believe in. Is that weak? So this is part of what I have learned from doing kink and doing freaky shit. My reaction to myself is different. My reaction to people doing racist shit is different. When I was in high school, some crazy lady on the street called me the N-word and I turned around. I wasn't even thinking. I just lunged at her and she turned around and ran from me into the street in front of an oncoming bus that slammed on the brakes at the last second. There was a chance that there's a thread of history where I'm responsible for someone dying because they said a word that pissed me off. I can't imagine who I would have been if I saw that happen. Fast forward to my living in San Francisco. I'm now officially a big old pervert and a weirdo, and I'm waiting for the bus. 
homeless guy comes up to me like, can you spare any change? And I'm broke as hell. So I'm like, nah, man, I got nothing. And the bus pulls up and it's a warm day and the windows are open and the doors of the bus open. And as I'm getting on the bus behind me, I hear this guy screaming, that's just what a stingy motherfucking nigger would say. And everyone on the bus is like, oh, and I stopped and I turned around and I looked at him and I was like, sir, you are not going to be a successful panhandler with that attitude. (laughs) And everyone on the bus was like, like high-fiving like I'm like high-fiving as I'm walking down the aisle you know like it was hilarious I was just like damn and then an hour later I was like oh my god 15 years ago that would have ruined my week now I'm high-fiving motherfuckers I'm having a great day wow I win because I've moved into a place where I realize that that has nothing to do with me. That's their pain, their sadness, and ultimately their loss. I feel sorry for you if you don't get to know me. I'm the bomb. Are you stupid? You're going to be so racist that you don't get to know the amazing, there's some TikToker who's doing a thing, this like redneck who's like, all right, racists, you don't get to use the toilet. <laughs> and then he does a lesson about like how the flusher was invented by a black person or whatever. He's like, you want some Lay's potato chips? Sorry, racists. And then he does like a history lesson about how some black dude invented potato chips. Right. <laughs> if I can love that shit, I'm like dying every day. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh my God, we did that. I didn't even know we did that. Yay. us! <laughs> and this is the thing we were speaking earlier about the psychological benefits of this it doesn't replace therapy. Is it therapeutic? Am I able to deal with shit better because of the weird ass beatings I've received in my life? Absolutely. I'm able to laugh in places that were not funny to me before. I'm able to have compassion for people who hate me. That feels pretty fucking good. It's not universal. And I still did a little dance when Pat Robertson fucking died. Fuck that guy. Oh my God. It's just a fight on Facebook. Pat Robertson just died yesterday and he was like this evil, um, evangelist, this television evangelist guy who's been around since before I was born. Oh, I'm like just the hours I lost as a child being forced to watch this motherfucker. I have a right to celebrate his death. But then there's a bunch of these bleeding hearts who are just like, you're just as bad as they are. If you celebrate the death of a human being. No, no, oh, no, wow, you sound like a dumbass when you say shit like that. Ah, oh, yes, I'm as bad as someone who, like, spend millions of dollars to create a center to cure gayness. I'm definitely as bad as that person, clearly. Anyway, it is almost 10 o'clock. I have been talking for almost three hours. This is a fucking disaster. Oh my God. They're just like, book five hours. <laughs> I'm like, someone has to stop me because I'm just like, I won't stop. Look at this, 254. My producer's going to kick my ass. <laughs> thank you. So I want to say thank you to everyone for coming. I will stick around for a little bit more. So if there's a question that we did not get to, or you're just like, I have a thing, please roll up. Um, if you go to, um, kinkdoula.com. You will see information on how to contact me. If you're interested in consulting, I do like one-on-one chats with people. Um, 
up to and including in-person stuff if I'm in the area where you are. Uh, let me know what you think you might need. I offer a free 15-minute consultation, so you can yell at me and be like, I need help with the thing and the thing, and I can let you know if I think I can help you. That is available to you. Um, All That and Mo is my podcast, and I have a bunch of stuff up at melina.com. That's also the pervertednegress.com, just to make the white people even more nervous. (laughs) I like this. I'm like, am I going to be on a list if I type the word negress? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, you will. You'll be on the best list of all. <laughs> so um, I want to say thank you, Benji. Round of applause. Yay. Yeah. And also for putting out with my ridiculous negotiation skills, because my, my ADD is so ridiculous. So several of our conversations took three weeks. <laughs> and I was like, and then I, one thing, I'm like, oh my God, this dude, he must be so tired of my ass. I'm like, I feel like he's never gonna, he's gonna be like, you know what? Forget it. <laughs> I was persistent. You were, you were so awesome. I always get people version. I'm like, just bother me, please, because I won't take it personally because I won't remember. You bothered me before. I can't be mad about it. Um, I'm so glad to be here and I will definitely be back since Georg is constantly dragging me to Vienna for fucking contemporary music bullshit. At least this way I can drag him to some freaky bullshit and he will be even more excited because there's nothing a dirty old man loves more than a play party. (laughs) Um, so thank you so much for that. And thank you for being so present and so amazing because I will tell you the reason I was able to continue this for as long as I did is because you, each and every one of you were so present with me here. You know, um, normally I'm wiped out after 90 minutes. I'm done. I'm fucking done, especially with a topic this heavy, trying to hold this space for everyone. And the fact that I went this long is a testament to each and every one of you. So I want to thank you for that because obviously I felt good about being here because otherwise I would have been like, good night, thank you. (laughs) And I would be right now finishing up my schnitzel at Cafe (laughs) Amacord. So I deeply, deeply appreciate um, each and every one of you for being here and for trusting me with your time because that's the most valuable resource any one of us have. So thank you. And I I will listen if you have anything else you want to ask. So thank you. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas. As performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. (laughs) 